Well, our sermon this morning is in Luke chapter 4. We will begin in verse 18. You'll find that on page 860 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to take that Bible in that pew rack right there. Now, I do invite you, by the way, to turn to uh, the Bible and uh, have a copy of God's Word before you this morning. Of course, the, the verses are going to be on the screen in a minute, but we're going to be working our way through this text. And I think it would be helpful for you to stay engaged with this message with the Word of God. And we'll keep referring back to this passage and others, perhaps, and that God might teach us from His Word. And so we are here on, on Luke chapter 4, verse 18. It's been a good morning, hasn't it? Praise the Lord. It's been such a delight to be here worshiping our God together. And now we get to hear from Him. May He speak to our hearts through His Spirit. Luke 4, verse 18. Please hear now the Word of God. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them. But only Zarephath and the lad of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they can throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, which reveals to us our Lord Jesus Christ. We long to know him more. We long for you to inflame our affections for Jesus this morning, that we might find great delight in who he is and what he has come to do. We pray, Father, as we consider the gospel, the work of Christ, the mission upon which he has been sent, that you will humble your people, that we will truly see our great need once and again this morning, and that Christ is the only one that can meet our need. No effort we give, no religious ritual we perform, no money we offer will ever take care of our great need. It is only through Christ and in Christ by his grace and through our faith that we might know you, a holy God, a Father to sinners. Help us to see Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was shortly before World War II, prior to Lieutenant John Blanchard in the U.S. Navy being sent out, that he went to a library 
and checked out a book. He noticed in the book that he had checked out that someone had written notes in the margin. In fact, the notes were found throughout the book. He soon found the notes much more compelling than the book. He was intrigued by the wisdom and the insight that whoever wrote them uh, displayed. In fact, he actually found himself becoming deeply attracted to the person who wrote them. He was, by his great blessing, he was actually found the name written in the book. Her name was Hollis Maynell. And after some investigation, he found that she lived in New York City, and he wrote her a letter. After some anxious days, she wrote back. And that what began was a correspondence that would take Lieutenant Blanchard throughout his time in war. In fact, soon this relationship developed where it became very personal, and in fact, even intimate. And his admiration for her just grew and abound. And he, of course, began to imagine what she must have looked like. He asked for a picture that he might confirm his imagination. She refused. Finally, the war was over, and they arranged a meeting at the Grand Central Station at a certain spot at 7 p.m. Her last letter that she wrote to him, she said, since I don't know what you look like and you don't know what I look like, I'm going to stand in a certain spot with a red rose in my lapel. And so Lieutenant Blanchard got off the train and looked to the spot, and I will let him describe the scene. As I looked to the arranged spot, I noticed a young woman who was coming toward me. Her figure was long and slim. Her blonde hair lay back in curls from delicate ears. Her eyes were as blue as flowers. Her lips and chin had a gentle firmness. And in her pale green suit, she was like springtime come alive. I started towards her, entirely forgetting to notice that she was not wearing a rose. <laughs> Almost uncontrollably, I made one step close to her, and then I saw Hollis Maynard. She was standing almost directly behind the girl, a woman well past 40. She had grain tucked, hair tucked under a worn hat. She was more than plump, her thick ankles thrust into low-heeled shoes. That scene left Lieutenant Blanchard somewhat paralyzed. At least his body was paralyzed as his mind raced, as reality caught up to his imagination. He wondered for a moment what he should do as this pretty young woman walked away, leaving Hollis there standing with her rose. He says, I was split. I felt choked up by the bitterness of my disappointment. But so deep was the longing for the woman whose spirit had companioned me and upheld me during my time of war that I thought that though this will not be love and romance, it could be something so precious something perhaps even better than love, a friendship for which I had been and ever must be grateful. And so with that resolve, he swallowed hard and approached Hollis saying, Hello, I'm Lieutenant John Blanchard. You must be Miss Maynell. I am so glad to meet you. May I take you to dinner? And when she replied, Sir, I have no idea who you are or what this is really about. But a young lady in a green suit who was just standing beside me said that I should wear this rose. And only if you were to ask me to dinner should I tell you that she is waiting for you in the big restaurant across the street. <laughs> Isaiah, the prophet, foretold of the Messiah, declaring he would not have 
any majesty that we should want to look at Him. And no beauty that we should desire Him. He, in fact, would be like one from whom men hide their face. Most continue to do so. They want nothing to do with the Messiah. They find Him uncompelling, uninteresting, unpleasant. Their hearts, in fact, find greater delight in their success or security or freedom or in March madness and nice clothes and good food and warm spring days. Some, however, look a little bit deeper, don't they? I trust many are here this morning who have found beauty in His wisdom and majesty in His mercy and greatness in His love. And they think about Jesus all the time. They are captivated by His power and His His love and His justice. They have looked within and have discovered a far greater beauty than that which can be worn on the outside. Of course, the day is coming when we will not have to look hard to see His glory. The day is coming when the veil will be removed... And all shall see the majesty of Jesus Christ. But that day has not yet arrived. And His majesty continues to remain shrouded for many. Therefore, some are drawn to Him and some are repulsed. The same was true in Christ's day. It's been going on for thousands of years. Today we consider this uh, text here in Luke 4, kind of finishing up Jesus' first sermon. We considered his sermon last week. Today we focus on the response to his sermon. And we will see it is not ultimately favorable that he is entirely rejected by those who knew him best. This homegrown boy who makes a name for himself has come home and many have come out to hear him. And after they hear him, he somehow incites a riot. And I think he does intentionally, by the way. And there they are, uh, out to get Jesus, rejecting Jesus. The question there before us then is why do they reject Jesus? Or perhaps we could ask today, why do so many in our day reject Jesus? I hope to end our time this morning considering why Jesus is rejected. But first, let's consider this story as we see, first of all, that Jesus is misunderstood. Jesus is first misunderstood. You note he picks a text according to verse 18 from the prophet Isaiah. And he tells them, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so we see that Jesus has become somewhat popular by this point, traveling throughout Galilee, and he finally comes home. The synagogue is packed, and he reads a prophecy of the Messiah who will come to bring God's favor, the year of God's favor. Jesus, after he reads that text, says, I am that Messiah. Today, in this little town, amongst these simple people, I tell you, I am the mysterious figure who has been predicted would come to set everything right. It is being fulfilled today. An outrageous statement. Of course, leaving us to wonder, how would they then respond? Shocked? I'm sure some of them. Outraged? Who do you think you are? How dare you? 
blasphemer? None of that. Note their response in verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? They loved it. They loved it. They spoke well of him. They marveled at the wonderful words that he was giving them. You see, I think what Christ is doing is he's giving them hope. They understand we're the good people. We obey God. We study the Bible. And we are under the thumb of a foreign power. They're the evil people. They're the immoral people. They're the sexually deviant people. They're the idol worshipers and the disrespectful. And a day is coming when the Messiah will arrive and He will give victory to the good people over the bad people. This is how they understand. Jesus comes and says, I'm here to bring good news to the poor, to free the captives. And they conclude, well, He is coming for us. The Messiah is here. Now they say, is this not Joseph's son? You know, they're, they're somewhat perplexed by this, aren't they? Because they're thinking, did we hear him right? Is Joseph's son saying he's the Messiah? And so there's a little bit of suspicion, but overall they're, they're amazed at this. Jesus takes his seat and says, I'm the Messiah. And everyone says, fantastic, let's get to work. And this one, I think, would probably be a good place to end the sermon, don't you think? Right, we could just wrap this up and go home now. Everyone's feeling good. Or a little tingling sensation going down the spine, perhaps, right? Everybody's kind of at a spiritual high. It's a good time to to end it, right? Uh, But Jesus didn't end it because He knew they weren't getting it. He knew they weren't understanding Him. How did He know? He knew because they liked His sermon. Everyone's good sermon, Pastor. Really enjoyed that. And Jesus thinking, you didn't hear what I said then. If you liked what I said, then you didn't hear it because moral people, religious people, never, never, never initially like the gospel because it exposes sin. It exposes what's wrong with us. And the sin is shown. And the gospel says to moral people, you're just as bad as wicked people. And it's offensive. In fact, there was once an English aristocrat in the 18th century named Lady Huntington. I don't know, perhaps you've heard of her. She was a great friend of George Whitfield, who was an incredible preacher in this day, perhaps one of the greatest preachers ever to preach the Word of God. And uh, Lady Huntington had found faith in Christ, and, and she found great joy in Christ. And she kept inviting people, royalty, to her, to, uh, people of her own class to hear this famous preacher. And many people refused. One person in particular she invited was the Duchess of Buckingham to come hear Whitfield. And the Duchess wrote back a letter to her saying, I absolutely will not come and hear George Whitfield. In fact, she, she wrote this letter. I'll try to do my best to, to capture this letter. She says, I thank your ladyship for the information concerning the Methodist preachers. Their doctrines are most repulsive and strongly tinctured with disrespect towards their superiors in perpetually endeavoring to level all rank and to do away with all distinction. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with the high rank and good breeding you enjoy. Now, you kind of have to have a British accent to really capture that, don't you? But she says, this is repulsive. This is offensive. The gospel is offensive. You read the gospels. 
And you find those who come to service every week, those who pay their tithe, those who study their Bible, those who try to be moral and good, when they hear the gospel, are always, 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 at least initially, angry. They are offended by it. If you're a good and decent and a religious person too, if you hear the gospel, you will find offense in it. They're hearing a different gospel. They're praising Jesus for the wrong reason. They're hearing that we're the good guys and Jesus has come on this earth to give them their best life now. And that's not what he has come to do. And so he keeps preaching. As we see in verse 23, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What you have heard, uh, what we have heard you did and Capernaum do here in your hometown. Now they haven't made the request yet, but Jesus knows their heart and they're going to soon ask him to start doing some miracles. They've heard of the miracles he's done in Capernaum. They want to see your stuff. Why don't you show us how we're going to get the bad guys, how you're going to lead us into victory. Verse 24, Jesus continues by saying, truly I say to you, no problem prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus says, you're not accepting me. You may think you're accepting me, but you're not because you're accepting what you want me to be, not who I truly am. And let me prove it to you. Let me prove to you, you don't understand my message. I'm going to tell you two stories, Jesus says. One of a pagan widow, one of a Syrian general who happens to be a leper. Let me for you define what it means to be poor and blind and captive. Let me define for you who the Messiah has come for. Let me show you what it means to receive salvation. You see, Jesus doesn't want to leave them where they're at. He wants to expose their hearts to their sin. He wants to show them, show them themselves. I hope perhaps He'll do so even for us today. As we see, secondly, Jesus clarifies His mission. As I mentioned, He tells two stories here from a very low point in the nation of Israel. It's an interesting point in the nation of Israel because it's probably the greatest time of paganism and idol worship, and yet it's also this great time of pride amongst the Israel people. And you have this very strange mixture of the two. It was the time of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. He tells the first story of the prophet Elijah who was sent to a Sidonian widow. We see it in verse 25. But in truth I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. This story is told for us in 1 Kings 17, by the way. It is a fascinating story. You, may, you would do well to study it this week if you're interested in this. But the, the, the time is a time of idolatry, moral corruption, and pride. And God looks at Israel and says, okay, you all going to reject me? You all, you all going to turn your back upon me? How about no rain for three plus years? How about a famine? Maybe that will get your attention. And so he says to his prophet Elijah, pray, Elijah, that it would stop raining. And Elijah prays, and God no longer sends the rain. A famine shortly comes upon the land. But here's the problem. Elijah lives in that land. And Elijah needs to eat too. And he's now living in a famine. And so God, who could have picked anybody in Israel, sends Elijah far away to find food. He goes to a foreign nation. He goes to Sidon. And there he finds a woman who's at the bottom of society. Her husband is dead. She has a little son. 
She is utterly destitute. She has no income. There is no government to help. I trust she was at, up to this point living on some kind of charity, some type of food bank perhaps, or some equivalent. But it's hard to get food from a food bank when it hasn't rained in three and a half years. And so she is in incredibly difficult situation. No husband. She's poor. She worships the wrong God. She's part of the wrong nation. She's an enemy to God's people. She's in a famine. There's no rain. She and her son are starving to death. She has nothing going for her except this. God loves her. And God sends His prophet to her. And so he finds this widow and she's out collecting some sticks. And he says to this woman, he says, you know, uh, excuse me ma'am, I'm, I'm very hungry. Uh, do you have anything for me to eat? And she looks at him and she knows she's an Israelite from a different land. She says, you worship a different God than I do. And she goes on and says to him, I don't have any food. In fact, you know what I'm doing? I'm collecting sticks because I'm going home and I'm going to make my last meal. I'm going to make some crackers. I'm going to give some to my son and I'm going to give some to me. And then both my son and I are going to die from starving to death. That's what I'm doing today. And this incredibly difficult situation. And you know what Elijah says? Crackers. Well, that sounds good. I would like your crackers. That's incredibly rude. And this woman just says, we're about to die. We have nothing. And, and, and I mean, you, you're left wanting to tell Elijah to go get a job, right? What do you mean you want her crackers? And he goes on, however, to tell her, listen, I'm not being rude. Because I tell you, if you feed me before you feed yourselves, God will give your jar of oil and your jar of flour, um, it would, they'll not end. You'll never run out of food. But you first must trust. You first must believe me. And so she went and did exactly as Elijah said. She made her crackers and did not feed herself, did not feed her son, but fed this foreign prophet. She trusted and obeyed. You read the last verse in 1 Kings 17, and you see her give her life to this God. The kingdom breaks in upon her because God is amazing. God is wonderful and God is loving. And Jesus goes on after he tells that story. He tells another story uh, equally fascinating in verse 27 of Luke 4. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. This is 2 Kings chapter 5. Now Naaman is a warrior. He's a general. And he's a Syrian. Now I don't know if you realize this but the Syrians and the Israelites don't get along well. And not much has changed. It has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. And so we see he's an enemy. We see, know that he's already attacked Israel and killed Israelites. We also notice that he has leprosy, which is a terrible skin disease. This canker sores develop upon your skin. You lose feeling in your extremities. Eventually your nose falls off and your fingertips fall off. And eventually you become disfigured and die. Now Nabin has heard that there is healing in Israel. He's heard that there's one that can heal because he has taken captive a Jewish slave girl. So he has enslaved her and she said, excuse me, Mr. Naaman, there's a man named Elijah in Israel that could heal you. And so he says, well, I got nothing to lose. And so he takes, gathers for himself um, 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold, like a lot of money. And in case that's not persuasive, he also takes horses and chariots. In other words, a full military entourage. A man coming with a lot of money 
and a powerful army, right? He has both the carrot and the stick. And it's almost like if Bill Gates showed up at this church building with a, with a bunch of tanks behind him and his credit card in hand and says, hey, can you help me? Well, this is what he does. He comes. And by the way, uh, you don't need to threaten God to get him to be good. And you don't need to bribe God to get him to be good. He's already good. He's already generous. He doesn't need any of that. He's just, that's how he is. But Naaman doesn't know this. And so he comes and he, he comes to this prophet Elijah and he says, okay, I hear you can heal me. How much is it going to cost me? Now it's amazing because Elijah is in his house and he actually sends his, his servant out to, to talk to this man. He won't go see him. Now, can you imagine what this is like? Because here comes a, a, a very high-ranking government official. He has full diplomatic community. He's coming with a full military guard. He has, you know, $10 million in his suitcase. And Elijah says, it's lunchtime. Right? <laughs> Elijah is busy eating a sandwich. And so he sends his, his servant out there and says, I don't have time for this guy. You go tell him that he needs to go to the Jordan River and he needs to go in the river, wash himself, come out, dry himself off, go back in the river, wash himself, come out, dry himself off, and do this seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be made clean. Now my question for you is how many of you would actually do that? Right? The Jordan's about 40 miles away and, and, and it's going to take a couple of days to get there. It'd be like if you came here and I said, listen, you want to be healed? Uh, there's a river in Oklahoma. Why don't you, very public river, everybody's out there, you go drive to Oklahoma and you go in the river and you wash yourself, scrub yourself, come out, you dry yourself off, you go back in, you scrub yourself and you come out and dry yourself off. No, most of us wouldn't do that because it's silly, right? It's humiliating. I mean, this man is great. He doesn't take orders, he gives orders. There's going to be people watching him. He's going to be humiliated. Which is, of course, exactly the point. God wants to humble him, and evidently leprosy has not done it. So let's try this. At first he's furious. He's like, I came all this way. I got rivers in my own country. Who is this guy? And that little slave girl is persistent. And finally he says, okay. And so he goes and he washes and he comes out and dries himself off and back in, scrubs. And, and by the fifth time, I'm sure he's feeling very, very silly as people are pointing figures and giggling at the Syrian general. And by the seventh time, the Bible says his flesh was restored like the flesh of a baby and he was clean. Baby smooth skin total cleansing. In fact, he would then declare, behold, I know there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. He would take two mule loads of dirt back to Syria so he could have his own little piece of Israel in Syria. For he said, for from now on, your servant will not offer sacrifice to any God, but to the Lord, to Yahweh. He was saved, you see. He gave his life to God. Now, why is Jesus telling these stories? What is Jesus trying to communicate? So Jesus comes and says, I'm here to preach the gospel to the poor. Right? And we talked last week. That means, ultimately what it means, those who are humble in their spirit, those who are poor in their spirit. He says, I'm not looking for people who go around saying, I'm God's, I'm one of God's people. I'm a child of Abraham. I, I, I'm, I've, I've been chosen by God. I'm with the good guys. God owes me. That's not who he's looking for. He's looking for those who are poor in spirit. The gospel is for those who are humble in their hearts, who see their great need. And these two Gentiles who the Jews hated. 
Both understood their need. And therefore, both received the Lord. They never said to him, God, you owe me. They never said, "Uh, God, I'm part of your people. They never said, God, I did this for you. I've done this for you. I did this for you. They saw their need. That only God can provide. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. They understood that. The people of Nazareth did not. They had something. And you see, thirdly, their response as Jesus is rejected. In verse 28, the Bible tells us when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down. You see, by the time he's done with his sermons, his neighbors and his former friends are filled with rage at him. And that rage worked so powerfully in their heart that they were intent on murdering him. Right? This is quite the altar call. Everyone comes forward. Right? As they rush him out. And they take him. They think the sin that Jesus has committed is so flagrant that they can execute him without a trial, just like they did with Stephen. So they drag him to the cliff to push him over the edge. He who came to bring the year of God's favor was rejected by his neighbors. They sought to kill him. Why? I mean, that's the question that this text asks, isn't it? Why? Why are they so angry? Why do they reject him? Why, Why do we reject him today? When I look at this text, I see three reasons why these people rejected him. I I think the first two are implied. The third is most clearly taught. I think it's helpful for us to consider this because these are the church-going people. These are the moral people, just like you and me. They first of all reject Jesus because he is familiar. I think this is implied in verse 22 when they say, and they said, is this not Joseph's son? Like, we, we know this guy. We grew up with this guy. We got one of his tables in our kitchen. Right? Our, our, our boys played Little League together. And they're, so they're very familiar with him. And there seems to be a hint of resentment here. And Jesus, I think, realizes the resentment because he says in verse 24, Truly I say to you, a prophet, a no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He understands that they are not accepting him. They are very, very familiar with him. They are, he is in his hometown. And that familiarity seems to have bred contempt. Now, they are initially impressed with him and they are excited about him, but they are clearly not fully persuaded by him. This seems to be, by the way, a snapshot of Jesus' ministry. As we work our way through Luke, we'll see a lot of this, especially in these early chapters in this Galilean ministry, where people are going to kind of find him amazing and interesting, but they are not willing to realign their life. They are not willing to repent of their sin. They are just familiar with him. This town is familiar, and, and I think this is important for us to hear because you're familiar with Jesus too, aren't you? I mean, you grew up with Jesus too, didn't you? Most of you, right? Jesus was in your Sunday school class and at your VBS, and you've heard sermons all your life about Jesus, and you are very, very familiar with him. You have made crafts about Jesus and sung songs to Jesus and prayed to Jesus. And there are many, many people in church who say, oh, yeah, I know Jesus. I know Jesus. I know the stories. I've gone to camp. I've, I've been baptized. I got this Jesus thing down. And yet there is no change in their life. There is no love for him. There is no repentance of sin. There is no longing. There is no new priority. There is no new allegiance. There is no surrender of self. Very familiar. And yet totally reject him. 
How many people in thousands of churches, just like this church in Nazareth, listen weekly to the gospel being preached and agree with it, even admire the gospel, even find pleasure in a well-delivered sermon, and yet their faith never moves them beyond a listening ear and a nodding head. Familiarity times leads to apathy. I wonder, Christian, are you running hard after Jesus? Are you more in love with Jesus now than you were last year or five years or ten years ago? The more you learn about Christ, the more He should win your heart and draw your affections, but so often we become almost immune to Him. He's like the dog in the corner that we pat on the head and happy He's there, but pay Him most of the time no attention. And many people fill church pews with that attitude towards Him. And that familiarity has, has, has led to this contempt towards him. Please understand, he is not simply the son of Joseph. He's the son of God. He's the savior of the world. And so we ought to beware that our familiarity with Jesus should draw us to him rather than make us lukewarm. I wonder, where are you today? I wonder, where is your heart? The second reason they reject Jesus, I think, is because he's ordinary. It's not what they expect. We see this in verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. Right? They're going to ask, let us see a sign. Jesus would hear this often, by the way. Let, let me see a sign, do something wonderful, do something amazing, and then I'll believe. I think part of the point of the story of the widow and the leper is that they don't get to see signs. They have to believe first. They have to obey first. And then, then they get the sign. Right? And Jesus shows up, and he's not doing anything. He's not, he's not doing any tricks. He's not, he's not doing any miracles. And, and he doesn't look like the Messiah to them. He's not acting like the Messiah to them. And they're going to ask, we want to see some fancy, uh, amazing fireworks that we hear you can do. He's, they want him to be a celebrity. Right? They want something exciting. You know what a celebrity is? I, th- I think this is true. A celebrity is someone who has, on the outside is totally together. Right? A celebrity on the outside is very charismatic and often very beautiful. And then on the inside, quite often, they're a wreck, aren't they? I almost think that's a requirement to be a celebrity today. You need to be beautiful and have some addiction or like a history of broken relationships. And then you could be a celebrity in our culture. And they want him to be a celebrity They want him to look the part. And we see this throughout the Bible. Remember Samuel who goes looking for a king and he finds one guy who's tall and strong and and has a a good jawline and looks like a superhero. And he says, oh, this must be the one. You must be the king. And God says, what are you doing, Samuel? What are you doing? I don't care about his jawline. I don't care about his, his strength in his arms and the looks of his face. I care about what's in his heart. But this is what we do. We, we look at the outside. Isaiah said he had no beauty. He has no majesty that will draw you to him. And his own hometown, according to one, could not pierce the veil of order, ordinariness around him. He was too ordinary. He wasn't what they expected. And I think the same happens for us today. That he is too ordinary. 
And some people grow disappointed with Jesus. They're unhappy with ordinary Jesus. They want Him to do some tricks in their life. They want Him to fix all their problems right now. Do it. Fix my marriage. Fix my finances. Fix my health. Let's see it. If you're the Messiah, do this stuff. And this is what we come to Jesus. We're like Herod. Remember Herod who, who Pilate sends Jesus to Herod and doesn't want to deal with him? Herod's all very excited to see Jesus because he's heard all these stories about Jesus. And he says, okay, do some trick. I hear you could do tricks. Do a trick and then I'll know you're the Christ. It reminds me of that, that musical, Jesus Christ Superstar, in which Jesus is brought before Herod. So you are the Christ, the great Jesus Christ. Prove to me that you're divine. Change my water into wine. Prove to me you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. That's all you need to do. Then I'll know it's true. Come on, King of the Jews. This is what we come to Jesus. We surrender to the Jesus and we hope things will immediately change. There will be miracles in our life in six months down the line and a year down the line and five years down the line. There's not the dramatic change. And we become like the Nazarenes. We're offended at His ordinariness. We say to Jesus, prove to me who you are. Walk across my swimming pool. Do those tricks. And Jesus instead says to us, you be faithful to me. And I will work in your life. And it will take some time. But we will work in your heart that you might become more and more like me. But people don't like that. They want it right now, right away. In fact, C.S. Lewis in his great uh, book, The Screwtape Letters, there's a book about uh, two demons writing letters back and forth to each other. And there's a senior demon and there's a junior demon. And, and so he's corresponding with his boss. And, and the junior demon has lost his patient, as C.S. Lewis, Lewis puts it. His patient has become a Christian. So the senior demon is very, very upset with this. But he says, all is not lost. There's a couple things we can do about this. And so he writes a letter. He says, tells, he advises the junior demon this to do this. Work hard then on the disappointment or the anti-climax, which is certainly coming during his first few weeks in the church. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Occupy his mind with the neighbors who sing out of tune or have boots that squeak, or double chins, or odd clothes, and the patient will easily believe that their religion must therefore somehow be ridiculous. Disappoint him. I wonder, are you disappointed with Jesus? Are you disappointed with what he's doing in your life, or what he's not doing in your life? Is he working too slow for you? You know what he says, trust me. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. And I am working in you. You need to look beneath the surface. Look beneath the outside. I am doing a profound work in your heart. Penetrate the ordinariness by which I have come and by which I work. Well, there's a third reason they reject Jesus. And I think this is most clearly taught in this passage. They reject Jesus because He is offensive. He's offensive. And he tells these stories about the Sidonian widow and naming the Syrian leper. And, and he is comparing, what he's doing is he's comparing these people in front of him with the pagans and the widows and the lepers and the enemies. 
And he's saying to them, you're all very excited that the Messiah is here. But you need to understand, if you want to receive me, if you want the favor of God upon you, you must become like the pagan widow or the Syrian leper, which is incredibly offensive. I mean, these people have the priest, and they have been given the temple, and they have the word of God, and, and they have the covenants, and they have the circumcision, and they are God's people, they are good people, they are church-attending, Bible-owning, tithing, moral, family-values kind of people. And Jesus is identifying them with people that they do not identify with. And they are saying, we're not, we're not the poor, we're not pagans. We're not the leper. We're not Gentiles. Or if you want to put it in today's language, we're not Muslims. We're not homosexuals. We're not drunks. We're not drug addicts. We're not illegal immigrants. I mean, that's what Jesus is identifying with. And Jesus says, you are as needy as a starving widow, and your sin is as terrible as leprosy. And until you see that, you will never understand how to receive me. In fact, Jesus would write a letter to the church at Laodicea in the book of Revelation. And he would uh, describe how they view themselves. They would say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Right? That's what the church says. And God says, you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They rejected Jesus because they thought they were better. They failed to see their common need, their common captivity. They said, we're the good guys, we're God's people. And they were happy to look down their nose upon those who did not live like them. There's a large church, Baptist Church in England, that has planted three other churches. And on the first Sunday, all these churches come together in a combined service, and they all take communion together. And one of the churches they started was in the slums. And there in the slums, this church had seen thieves and criminals and prostitutes and drug addicts come to faith in Christ. And there they all knelt side by side at the communion rail. In fact, the pastor was standing back and he saw a former burglar kneeling next to a judge, the same judge who had found him guilty and sentenced him to jail. And after the service, the judge and the pastor, they kind of just walked along together, almost in stunned silence for a little bit, until the judge says, what a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement, saying, A marvelous miracle of grace indeed. And yet there was another pause. And the judge had a curious look upon his face. He says, But to whom did you refer? The former convict, the pastor responded. In which the judge replied, I was not referring to him at all. I was thinking of myself. You see, it's not surprising that the burglar received God's grace when he left jail. He had nothing but a history of crime and, how much, and, and the knowledge of how much help he needed. When he understood that Jesus could be his Savior, he knew there was no salvation aside from him. He was his hope and joy. But look at me. I was taught from the earliest infancy to live as a gentleman, that my word was my bond, that I was to say my prayers, go to church, take communion, and so on. I went through Oxford, attained my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually became a judge. I was sure I was all I needed to be, though in fact I too am a sinner. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. 
I am the greater miracle. Christian, please beware of a smug, condescending attitude that is so easy to come into our hearts as we live these good, moral, sacrificial lives. Please understand it was the good people in this day, the church attenders, that end their service by trying to murder the preacher. And Jesus, of course, could escape at any moment, couldn't he? And yet he let them drag him all the way to the brow of the hill. He is showing them, is he not, their murderous hearts. He is trying to reveal to them they are not what they think they are. He is trying to show them their spiritual poverty. You see, there are, there are two ways the Bible teaches to rebel against God. You can rebel against God through disobedience. You can say, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do when I want. I'm going to decide how I'm going to live. I don't care what God says. And, and that's rebellion. But you can also rebel through obedience. You can say, if I never miss worship service and follow the rules and give my money away and study the Bible and pray, then I'm the good guy. And therefore God owes me. And Jesus told a story about this. There were two sons, and one son said to his dad, Give me all that is due mine. And he left his father, and he lived in riotous living, in parties, and drunkenness, and prostitutes. And then there was another son who stayed right by his father's side and never disobeyed. One son was greatly immoral. One son was greatly moral. And yet at the end of the story, it is the elder son, the moral son, that is furious that the father has taken the younger back into the family. Furious that the father has given the younger what was due to him. See, you can rebel against God through obedience. It will accumulate, if you're not careful, this spiritual wealth where you begin to think God owes me. Test yourself, brothers and sisters in Christ. How do you know if you're rebelling through obedience? Well, do you look down on others? Especially those people who do not keep your standards, who live wicked lives, Do you scoff at them, perhaps in your heart? Look down your nose upon them? That's called pride. We see that a lot in the Bible from a group called Pharisees. You can rebel through obedience. Are you angry? The older brother's furious. The Nazarenes are furious. Furious that God does not share their their lofty view of themselves. In fact, you see what they did? These are... These are the Sunday morning people. They have their ties on and their Sunday school quarterlies in their hands. And the Lord shows up and says, you're just as needy as the rest. And they try to kill him. They try, but they fail. As we see in verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. Somehow simply walks through. Some Jesus Jedi trick that he just kind of disappears through their midst, God protecting Jesus, God protecting Jesus this time. He walks away. You see that at the very end, last three words, he went away, he left Nazareth. You know how many times he came back to Nazareth? Never. Not another time. His last visit home, gone forever. And for some people in that day, that was their last chance to receive Jesus. And they missed it. They were trusting in their righteousness. In fact, you know Nazareth, you, go, you can visit the same town. It's almost 100% Muslim. Still very religious people. 
and they still reject Jesus. They rejected Jesus in this day. He got away, but it is only a matter of time when they try again, isn't it? And they will succeed. In fact, this is his first public act, according to Luke's gospel, the first kind of Jesus on the stage doing um, his thing. And, and you could already tell this is going to turn bloody. This is going to end badly. As Isaiah has said, he would be despised and rejected. Rejected all the way to a cross. And now here, here's the amazing thing that what we now know is that the very fact that Jesus was rejected by religious people is the very basis by which we may be accepted by God. He has gone to a cross, and he has died there. The religious people put him on that cross because they did not like his message that they needed God's grace, and so they killed him. And yet, in God's economy, in God's plan, in God's mission, he has taken my sin. Yes, I have sin, and so do you, you church-attending religious person. He has taken our sin, and he has placed it upon a perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And there he took the infinite wrath of God upon himself, and he has paid my debt, and he has paid your debt, and he would pay the sin debt of anyone who would despair of themselves and come to Christ. Come to Christ. Don't look for magic tricks. Don't look for flash. Don't look to be built up. Come to Christ because He has taken away your reproach from a holy God. Bow your knee to Him in faith. For the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be saved. What more can you want? than to be saved by a holy God. He has come and done all the work. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. Come to Him with nothing and say, Christ, save me. I surrender all to You. Our Father, please, will You save the lost today? Perhaps there is one here this morning. Perhaps there are many here this morning that they're just coming every week, week after week, sitting in these pews, singing these songs, listening to these sermons, and yet there is no change in their life. Oh God, don't let them continue in this self-delusion. God, will you not work in their heart for your glory and for their great and eternal gain that they may come to themselves and become aware of how much they need you and that all they need is You. Do this work, Father. Save the lost. Christ has come to seek and to save the lost. Do that now, Christ. Do Your work now. Give them faith to believe that they would call out to You. And Father, if there is anyone here who would say to You this morning, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for my sin and rose from the dead and is coming back to establish His eternal reign, and I want to be in His kingdom. I worship Him as my God. Now and from this day forward, forgive me of my sin. If there's anyone here, Father, who would pray that prayer, who would surrender their lives, will You please, Father, lead them to share that with someone? That they may talk with someone who brought them or a family member or an elder, maybe John, who read Scripture for us this morning. Will You do this work? And for the rest of us, Father, who know Christ, 
Please help us not to become too familiar with Jesus. Please help us to run after Jesus. Capture our heart, Jesus. You are glorious and majestic. May we see it. Give us eyes to see it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.